You're listening to All Things Video. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed Chrome extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Our team at Bent Pixels uses TubeBuddy to manage channels for major brands like SeaWorld and Live Nation, as well as celebrities like Kevin Hart and Joe Rogan. They absolutely rave about the product, and I'm sure you'll love it too. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. Welcome to All Things Video, where we are uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. I'm James Creech, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Parker Jones, Head of International at Awesomeness TV. So, Parker, I want to talk about a lot of things today. First of all, understanding your background in the digital video space. How did you find yourself first working in digital media? Well, I mostly lucked into it, to be honest. My big entry point was working at YouTube on the part- partnerships team. Before that, I was uh, actually a wildlife documentary filmmaker at the Division of Wildlife in Utah. And, um, you know, we had a YouTube channel, so I had some familiarity with that. But really nothing uh, that would have prepared me for the, <laughs> the major business that was YouTube and digital uh, video. So I you know, was working on, on wildlife filmmaking and um, putting together a series, actually. And then I got a call from uh, Courtney Lischke, uh, who's now the chief of staff at YouTube. How did you meet Courtney? Courtney uh, was a family friend, and she said they were expanding their partnerships team. And was I interested? And, you know, it was Google, it was YouTube, it was chance of a lifetime. So, um, of course, I was interested. So I came over, interviewed, and uh, next thing I knew, I was in L.A. uh, working in Beverly Hills. Um, Had no idea that there was a business behind YouTube, but quickly found out. So you went from this wildlife documentary filmmaker in Utah to moving to L.A., working for YouTube, the largest video player, managing these content partnerships. What was that like? Well, as you can imagine, it was pretty daunting. Um, I uh, hadn't any experience with um, managing big studio partners. Um, the one sort of saving grace for me was that I had a very technical background. And so there were a lot of um, product needs. I, I guess with all MCNs, there was really no infrastructure on the YouTube side to manage you know, their tremendous growth. So I quickly found a role um, sort of building internal products uh, that would help, you know, automate rollups of thousands of channels a day. And I spent a lot of my time uh, managing millions of dollars of payments to, you know, the 120 funded channels, which is actually how I um, wound up talking to Awesomeness TV. What prompted you to leave YouTube and start working at Awesomeness? Well, YouTube is a, an amazing place to work. It was a tough decision, but you know, at the time, there was this very tangible excitement around uh, networks and MCNs. They were, uh, it was what they call like sort of the land grab phase. <laughs> and um, a lot of us at YouTube felt like, you know, we could do this. We could build a network. And, and there were a lot of complaints coming from channels that they weren't providing a lot of value. And so we thought, you know, we could build something that was much better than all the existing networks. So I... Um, I felt the same way. I wanted to go out on my own and do this. So uh, when I got talking with um, Awesomeness with Brian Robbins and Brett Boutier, uh, they were basically you know, offering me a chance to build an MCN um, within Awesomeness, so a startup within a startup. And so I just I couldn't miss the opportunity. 
how big was the network at the time that you started at Awesomeness? Brian, Brett, and, and Margaret Laney, actually, they had had the idea um, of starting a, an MCM before I joined. They basically said, hey, you know, there are these other networks out there, and none of them are catering to, you know, young creators, new creators. And so they they had the idea, didn't have any experience with um, running an MCN, but uh, that didn't stop them from launching a sign-up online. So there was a, a web form that you could fill out and, and essentially apply to join the network. Um, and then they had a team of interns just rolling channels up. So I joined and we had 10,000 channels. And then um, within the, I'd say, two months after I joined, we had um, almost 60,000. And then two months after that, we were close to 90. How has YouTube changed? Or perhaps how has your perception of YouTube changed since working there and then leaving to join an MCN? So I would say it has changed tremendously. <laughs> um, it, was, it was funny. At YouTube, we at least in my role on the partnerships team, um, we would regularly talk to uh, YouTube partners uh, about, you know, best practices and how they should be using the platform. And there was there's always like a feeling of a little uneasiness with MCNs because, you know, at times they were using the platform in ways that um, were not necessarily supported. As I joined the partner side, it was it was eye-opening for a number of reasons. One, um, I realized that I, I knew nothing when I was <laughs> working uh, at YouTube compared to what I had learned as a partner. Because obviously now, you know, knowing how the platform works was very important to my well-being. <laughs> I, I guess one of the big issues that I faced once being a partner was you really feel like your hands are tied, um, especially as an MCN. Like you're you're trying to operate as your own platform but ultimately you're you're completely bound to youtube and um that was frustrating at times um uh but you know the partnerships team there is is doing all they can uh and and they're you know a great group um and so they were you know they would support us as far as their policy <laughs> would allow but ultimately there were a lot of limits because YouTube has had somewhat of an uneasy relationship with MCNs. Increasingly more recently, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it goes up and down, right? Like, we've heard that they would like to move away from sort of the tight grip on, on creators um, for many, I mean, for a long time now. You know, there's always sort of been the threats. And they have made substantial changes, right, uh, to the affiliate and manage setup and more recently the uh, monetization suspension rule. But at the same time the MCNs have really driven the platform, uh, especially the sales side. It's allowed YouTube to essentially scale the conversations with advertisers because now you have a, a bunch of um, independent sales teams going after big brands and convincing them why they should be advertising on YouTube. And YouTube sort of struggled with um, their own sales team, at least, should the objective, because it was tied into Google and they're, you know, selling more of their, I think, Google search and display network than they were like, you know, um, pre-roll on YouTube. That's changed substantially recently. But, you know, in the early days, like that was a huge leap for these MCNs to be out there talking to brands. Um, and you're now seeing, you know, it's very normal for big brands to be um, spending on YouTube. 
So on the one hand, these MCNs were helping creators that YouTube would otherwise not be able to, to the extent that an MCN would. And they're also uh, evangelizing the platform to brands and agencies who will spend dollars advertising on YouTube. Right. But on the other hand, they're in competition with YouTube a bit in that they are aggregating large, for lack of a better term, ad networks of these creators and then selling into that inventory. Or they're going outside of the YouTube ecosystem and doing brand deals that then YouTube doesn't get a piece of. So it seems like there's created additional conflict in that relationship, especially as time goes on. Absolutely. Um, I think, it, it, you know, you hit the nail on the head there um, where our main sales function is with you know sponsored videos or branded integrations into um, our partners videos and um uh yeah i mean that's something that youtube obviously is not seeing the cut of that revenue source right uh they have implemented policies that technically are aimed to prevent the integrations you know we'll see how that plays out but arguably it's still good for youtube that these creators and this video activity is happening on their platform rather than elsewhere do you ever see YouTube getting into that game on its own, working directly with uh, creators to do brand integrations, even if they don't directly represent them? No, I think inherently this is where YouTube as a tech platform struggles because um, you know these brand deals don't quite scale like you know most tech companies expect things to scale. So these are very much handheld, white glove sort of services that um, these sales teams specialize in. And, you know, while we do like a, a pretty big volume of these integrations, it's still not scalable in the way that YouTube would like it or Google for that matter. Um, so I think that is a perfect role for MCNs. Um, and, and I don't anticipate YouTube going in, in that direction. They've <clears throat> approached it, I think, more from, you know, the media buying side, of course. Uh, so they've created, you know, these preferred packages and, and um uh, I think that's sort of their answer to becoming a little more custom with um, how advertising goes on YouTube. And the advent of the TrueView ad unit seems to have revolutionized the way that brands buy advertising video placements on YouTube for the better, right? For creators, for the brands themselves, and for YouTube. Absolutely. It's a win-win. I mean, the audience likes it because they can skip. The brand likes it, or the advertiser likes it because they only pay for the um, non-skipped. Uh yeah, and so, and there's used to be a bit of a premium on those as well. Not to get too far afield, do you think that YouTube driving performance-based advertising metrics, you know, Google did this first with PPC with search and is now doing this with video with the cost per view, do we think that other mediums will move towards more performance metrics? Well, I, I don't have a lot of information as far as the trend that Google is going, but I have uh, anecdotally heard that... Um, Facebook has been doing really well with performance ads, and I'm sure that has made its way um, around Silicon Valley. The interesting rationale behind why performance ads are, are a big deal right now supposedly has to do with user acquisition for all of these new startups that are essentially having to drive user growth, obviously, on their new platforms to justify huge investment rounds so essentially the idea is they're now taking a lot of that money using it in marketing to drive user acquisition and the best you know way to get users via uh, advertising is obviously like cpa or performance ads which facebook is historically a very good channel for especially if you're a mobile app startup and you're doing mobile advertising on facebook it's an interesting example because I think it parallels a trend we see a lot 
in technology businesses, but also in media businesses, and particularly in the example of an MCN, where the goal is first to get to scale and then to figure out monetization. Even in the case of YouTube itself, right? I mean, we've seen a fundamental shift in the way that YouTube uh, operates since the drive to make this thing profitable, right? I I think the competition, especially with MCNs, has grown out of the fact that YouTube needs to monetize and needs to be profitable for the overall parent company. It makes sense. It's at that phase of its life cycle, right? Um, At some point, all startups have to consider monetization. (laughs) And so I think that is good for YouTube. They've been driving revenue growth like crazy and great for creators. Um, The difficulty I think they're having or the challenge that they're having right now is um, it's coming at a time when there's a lot of other platforms coming out of, uh, video platforms coming out of uh, the woodwork. I mean, you have so many new social video platforms coming out it seems like every other week and they're all vying for content for amateur creators and consumers for that matter um we being you know awesome as tv we talk to a lot of young uh, users you know 10 to 13 year olds uh, just to get their app you know consumption behavior and it's pretty amazing to hear a couple different things. One, they say they view YouTube as the place where you go to make it. And so they're intimidated to upload there unless their videos are you know, high quality. So they're more likely to use Snapchat or YouNow to upload videos because it's you know, consider, it's considered more amateur and, and, and sort of safer in that way. I think there's a... There is the potential threat that all of these new platforms are sort of chipping away at the amateur creator side of YouTube, which in turn may draw consumers uh, away in the long run. I mean, right now YouTube has such a um, substantial lead that it's uh, you know uh, it's unlikely to feel any of these effects. But for us as MCNs, like we pay attention to this because um, if our business is solely based on YouTube and consumers, especially young consumers of awesomeness TV content start shifting elsewhere, you know, we have to be there as well. Absolutely. So you've been at Awesomeness TV almost two and a half years. You've seen a dramatic change, especially since undergoing the acquisition by DreamWorks Animation and more recently additional investment through Hearst. How has the business changed since DreamWorks and Hearst have become much more involved? Well, I will start by saying with both of those uh, acquisitions, we've remained very autonomous. I think both DreamWorks and Hearst look at awesomeness as uh, as something to learn from um, and not to meddle with. Uh, if anything, you know, the, the, the only changes I saw, I think one was accounting, <laughs> uh, especially when we were wholly owned by DreamWorks. There was SOX compliance that we had to uh, deal with. Uh, And the other area, though, is it's been very positive in that we've had many advertiser opportunities uh, open to us because of DreamWorks and and her. So uh, I remember in the early days, you know, our campaigns were smaller deals. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like we were working with Coke and Kohl's and Target. And that was really exciting. Um, You know, and then when we've started to launch movies, uh, we worked with Fox, um, who I think is DreamWorks' partner. And with Lionsgate on the, the recent Smosh release, which seems to have gone very well. Yeah, we've now had two hit movies um, between Expelled and Smosh, um, both you know hitting number one spots in the iTunes store. Terrific. 
And recently you've taken on a new role. So after leading the network business for over two years, you stepped into uh, spearheading the international efforts for Awesomeness TV. Tell us a little bit more about what that entails. So um, when we opened up the Awesomeness MCN, um, we were really surprised to learn that, you know, thousands of channels from around the world, I, I mean, tens of thousands of channels from around the world uh, were joining us. So we had like 10,000 Brazilian channels and um, around the same uh, from the UK. And it was exciting that we had uh, any presence <laughs> in all of these other countries. And that speaks to the nature of YouTube's sort of global reach. But on the other hand, it was a big challenge for supporting these guys. Like we didn't have sales teams <laughs> abroad. So our, our international expansion really involves two things. One is um, expansion of the MCN uh, abroad, and, and two is all about content expansion. So in the five new countries that we're launching, the UK, France, Spain, Germany, and Brazil, um, we will have teams supporting our uh, MCN creators there. We will also have production facilities in each of these countries producing you know, localized content um, with the Osmus brand, which will present a lot of opportunities for our, and for our creators to now take part in, in um, this. Now, those five countries, they're all very mature markets. I'm curious, you know, why Awesomeness elected to go into, say, France, Brazil, Germany, rather than going into more emerging or developing markets, especially those in perhaps Southeast Asia or South America that have uh, very high mobile usage and now increasingly very high video consumption. I think one thing that separates Awesomeness from many of the other MCNs is uh, a very strong content brand. Um, we generally you know, lead with content and, um, that's hard to compete with, um, even abroad where, um, you know, we feel like our, our brand will draw creators, right? Um, we have a, you know, special sauce of strong, you know, branded sales and, um, content distribution. And so it actually makes sense to go into these more developed, territories um because you know we'll need to leverage advertisers willingness to you know to spend on on uh online video um now i will say it still feels like generally around the world it's some variable number of time behind the u.s in in terms of the overall online business and now you know each country is totally different and as you mentioned some countries have uh crazy mobile consumption i mean they completely skipped internet video you know web-based video and just went right into mobile video which will definitely present a challenge for advertising as we see here it's difficult to um crack the mobile advertising nut and i think that's specifically because mobile advertising seems to be difficult to measure right comscore still struggles with mobile specifically comscore struggles on youtube i know that's going to change as there have been um uh, there's going to be more connectors there that allow them to see YouTube mobile data, <laughs> um, which is way late. Like this should have happened a long time ago. I think that's part of the reason why there's a gap in advertiser spending on mobile. Since Comscore is like the go-to analytics source for these traditional players, like if they can't see into the massive amounts of mobile consumption, does that prevent them from spending money there? 
I think that's probably a huge factor. But you also need to look at the way that a lot of media is bought in the traditional agency model. There's a lot of education that needs to happen. And with new ad formats, with new device types on which to display advertising, it takes a while to educate and then uh, encourage brands to get comfortable with, with spending on those platforms. Sure. What major trends are currently impacting or shaping the video space from where you sit? Ooh, I like this question because there's a lot of things going on, right? Okay, so one of the major trends right now is just the explosion of online video platforms. Um, everything from OTT to new, you know, sort of mobile social online video platforms. Um, I mean, literally, like, let's think about it. It's like there's Vine, Snapchat, YouNow, Instagram, Vidme. Um, there's Periscope, Meerkat. I, as a creator, I don't know how you decide where to put your content. <laughs> there's so many places now. And many of these platforms now, like, you know, Vessel, Amazon uh, with Fire and, um, you know, Verizon's new forthcoming platform are uh, very hungry to the point of shelling out money for content, right? So it's a great time to be a content creator. Um, the value of content has gone up. Competition for content right now across all these platforms um, sort of overshadows a, another trend that is essentially what people talk about when they talk about online disrupting, you know, traditional, and it really comes down to distribution. So the traditional means for extracting value from content really dealt with windowing, with the segmentation across markets. So it's essentially, you know, having exclusivity on, on, um, on content, which, you know, is challenged by online video where everything's available in every country for perpetuity, right? In the long term, you know, that's a challenge that will have to be uh, sorted out. But currently, the competition for content is driving the value up, which is great. Um, another trend that I think anybody in the YouTube space sees right now is the number of movies coming out with um, YouTube and Vine influencers. I think it may have started with Smiley or Camp Dakota around the same time. Um, and, you know, we had our movie Expelled with Cameron Dallas. It did really well. The idea here is that you use these big influencers as a marketing vehicle for your, um, for your movie and you can put it out in fairly, with a fairly low, low budget and the consumers are, you know, so excited to see their favorite influencers um, on the big screen. So uh, it, you're seeing this being replicated among many studios right now. There's tons of movies coming out. I think you're going to see <laughs> a lot of these before um, the cost of making them starts to come up because I think there's now going to be competition for these influencers to star in the films and they're going to they're gonna drive sort of their um, rates up. Another big trend that has happened is, you know, as this space has matured, um, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but the ad spend um, moving from traditional over to online video seems to be happening now finally. Another... Uh, trend that I've seen, um, especially as it relates to inter international, I think is really cool, is it seems like it's always been a one-way street. So viral videos come out of the U.S. and, you know, are consumed around the world. Um, there have been a few cool, like, viral trends in the last couple years that make it seem more of a two-way street. So first being size Gangnam Style. I thought that was amazing that, like, a foreign language thing blew up everywhere and in particular in the u.s 
So I think what you're seeing now is a little bit more of a two-way street, and um, I, I think that's an interesting trend. So to recap, we have proliferation of platforms, and it seems like a fragmentation of the content across multiple platforms. Uh, we also are seeing a lot of influencers moving into uh, movies, right? And then finally, the internationalization of content and the experiences across cultural boundaries. Yes. So I think maybe you should just do my answers. <laughs> no, I, uh, I could probably be a little more succinct. No, no, that was great. But you're right. That was exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions, what would they be? Okay. Here, I'm going to say the three predictions first, and then I will explain them. I think there will be an open MCN that will get a lot of traction. I think YouTube will lower the rev share. Did you say three? I have a couple more. Uh, I've already alluded to this. There's going to be an explosion of long-form influencer uh, content. And I think there's going to be another viral video. I love that. All really good. So I want to hear more about these because some of those are pretty bold statements. You're claiming that there's going to be an open MCN. I would say there already are open MCNs, right? Look at Freedom, 250,000 partners, 200 subnetworks, no locking contracts. Jetpack launched their service and they had something like 17,000 inquiries in the first you know, month. So there's tremendous interest in a new model of MCN that doesn't manage or take a, a firm relationship with the partner, but is there to provide some sort of services. Maybe those are offered a la carte. Yeah, no, and, and I think... These are great examples of the trend that's coming. I think there will be a creator platform um, that's either subscription-based or like transactional-based. I think that's what I'm getting at with an open MCN. They still are based on a partnering structure with YouTube, which is fine. But I think two things will make a difference. One is uh, is a sort of multi-platform version of this um, because, as I mentioned, you know the many platforms that have been coming up. Uh, now creators will need help on figuring out how to, you know, <laughs> manage their content across all these. And I know there are many players right now trying to help. Even Epoxy, for example, is is helping, um, I think, creators distribute their content on multiple platforms. But, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, creators are no longer, and YouTube doesn't necessarily like this, uh, having, you know, your revenue be tied up with the MCN. So you're saying if YouTube today is an AVOD platform, they're is going to be an emergence of an SVOD platform, a transactional-based platform. Is it possible that YouTube becomes all of those? I mean, YouTube seems to be aggressively pushing SVOD this year. You look at even the folks that they've hired, Robert Kinsel and now Kelly Merriman from Netflix. There's a clear sign that YouTube wants to roll out uh, an SVOD offering to complement the AVOD. Yes, you're right. I, I was meaning a subscription creator platform. Like I think creators will pay for a platform what does that mean like a, like a vimeo they would pay no 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 okay let me rephrase this um or they would pay to be part of an mcn yes ah okay like jetpack right so jetpack for instance has three tiers of service nine dollars a month or maybe it's 9.99 uh, for the basic level and then they have 199 and 399 so you can pay all the cart for services so at this point i'd like to rescind my original <laughs> parker's predictions have already come true <laughs> my predictions were meant for last year's podcast <laughs> we'll just have to backdate the uh this episode yeah i don't actually i want to strike that then if if that exists right now uh let me rephrase <laughs> so i think the popularity of an open mcn or creator platform 
uh, will increase. Uh, examples such as Jetpack <laughs> and Freedoms Network, I think, will continue to be important as creators from all other MCNs sort of uh, come up on their two-year mark and leave the networks. And ultimately, I think that's a good thing for the industry and for creators especially, right? We, we went from the days of machinima with lifetime contracts and even five years, which is an eternity in this space, to now you know, more of the standard one or two years and, and soon to be no lock-in contracts, giving creators more choice and flexibility to, to leave when they need. Yeah, I will say from the MCN side, it is there are reasons for two-year contracts. It can be tremendously frustrating to uh, spend a lot of time and money even um, on growing you know, creators uh, uh, growing their YouTube channels. And then just in time that they become big enough to now be on the radar of, uh, you know, brands and other MCNs, they want to leave. So you sort of spend a lot of time without reaping any of the benefit of, um, uh, of their, you know, fully grown or at least, <clears throat> you know, more substantial channel. We've seen this before. I mean, we, um, <laughs> we would, we had a couple channels we'd spend um, a lot of time with them, brought them in, produced a number of videos with them, had them featured on our main channel. They grew to about 250,000 subs from 10,000 subs and within the, you know, basically a year and then one another contract and it takes two to tango. It took a lot of effort on their part and um, they may not have seen, you know, sort of the work that we were doing. Um, but, you know, that then becomes sort of a lost source of revenue for us once they leave, uh, once they're big and we can't sell any brand deals with them. So do you think you could help me with my channel? I have about six subscribers and uh, I, I put Justin Bieber in the tags of all my videos to help get discovered in search. Justin Bieber's good. Miley Cyrus. That's a good one. Frozen. Yep. Um, Vsauce. Peppa Pig. That's important. And then I yeah. just, I use your name in all the tags as well. That'll knock you some points back. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's an automatic spam trigger. Yeah. Um, no, I I would love to. I mean, that was sort of the mission of awesomeness originally was to like literally take people who have no subscribers and you know um, find people who just had talent and help grow them. And and you know it's hard to do that at scale, but we we did do that with many channels, and and um, we have a number of them in our you know awesomeness family. And um, uh, you know I think that is the most rewarding experience heading an MCN. I like that you call it the awesomeness family. So do you all get all 90,000 of you get together for Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah, it is uh, a massive undertaking. Um, 90,000 over a Google Hangout. There we go. Very nice. Uh, I want to pick apart your second prediction. You're claiming that YouTube will lower its rev share. I could see that on the horizon. Interestingly, or perhaps maybe not, you know, Facebook matched the parameters of the YouTube partner program with a 45-55% rev share. Were you surprised by that? Yeah. I was not surprised by that at all. If you're Facebook, right, equivalent reach of YouTube in rough numbers, what are your options? You're not going to go higher because, you know, you need to get people on your platform and encourage them to start monetizing. And it would look greedy to take more than already YouTube's agreed just 45%. If you go lower, you start a race to the bottom, which I think we're going to have anyway, especially, with, as you mentioned, the proliferation of so many new video platforms and a lot of emerging platforms that want to take away, take a shot at the big guys, and thus will have to compete with a lower rev share. So it seemed reasonable to me that Facebook would launch with an equivalent rev share and try and differentiate from YouTube in other ways. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, however, we've seen bidding wars 
going up for content creators, you know, uh, essentially shelling out tons of money to get content on, you know, their respective platforms. So um, it's not like it's beyond the uh, realm of possibilities for these guys. I think it, it was a, a probably a wise move on Facebook's um, and because like you said, they have the, they have the reach and the uh, advantages creators might be looking for to promote their um, channel. So they don't you know, need to differentiate in price um, or in rev share. Well, there are other variables that factor into the equation, right? Especially ad load and the CPM or effective you know, cost per view rates if they are doing a performance ad buying method. So if Facebook can generate enough advertiser interest or preserve, if not supply, at least the illusion of that so that those CPM rates will go higher, then Facebook can attract creators. So you mentioned that YouTube will ultimately lower its rev share. What do you see that going down to? <laughs> I don't have a particular number in mind of where it will go. We're a way away from that. I just think at some point there will be a shift. I think there will have to be. I agree. So while we're throwing these wild predictions out there, why don't we each take a guess just to see if we're right? Um, okay, 70-30. I was thinking 70-30 as well, but I don't want to agree with you. So I'm going to say 75-25. Oh, gosh. Thank you. <laughs> and your other predictions? We're going to see a continuation of long-form content being generated by influencers or including influencers and in, in increasingly traditional entertainment, Hollywood, using YouTube influencers in their content. Yes. I, I think that's an easy prediction just given um, you know the six films that we're doing this year and the slate of a lot of the other studios. Um, <clears throat> I know many traditional studios... Uh, have you know young entrepreneurs inside them and they're looking at what's going on here and wanting to get a cut because they've seen a, a diminishing consumption of like the the medium-sized films and so they'll be looking at maybe churning out a volume of smaller films we'll see at the same time i think the cost of these uh films will go up <laughs> um which may you know reduce the economic advantage the margins that we're seeing now so I, I guess my other prediction, I was trying to throw a real number at like when the number of platforms then contracts. Will that happen from consolidation? I think it'll be a mix of both. I think they can't sustain um, you know, this fragmentation. At some point, there will be winners. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How many navigation apps or map apps do you have on your phone? I have two. Two, which are? I have Waze. And Google, and yes, there's a third one called Apple Maps. I don't even remember where it is. But you have three navigation apps on your phone, as do I. I have the exact same three. I think we're seeing an appification, if you will, of our time habits, right? I mean, we want choice. And that will mean users have a need for multiple providers. And so, yes, at some point, I think not all of these early entrants will survive, but I do think we will see a lot of video platforms. Yes. When you look at the history of media consumption, right, it has gone in the direction of giving consumers more and more control, right, and allowing more and more segmentation, diversification of media, right? So if you are interested in cosplay, like now you have a channel that you can watch, um, and what's different now is that, like, you know, 
a niche can be millions of people, right? So it can sustain a business. No, you're absolutely right. And you look at, at television and we have hundreds. We, I don't know. I don't even own a TV at this point, but we probably have thousands of channels. And conceivably one day, those will all live as apps on our smartphones. Yeah, I mean, if they survive the crossover. But yes, there is a proliferation because this is following a natural trend, right? At the same time, there is redundancy right now in the market. And so there will be winners because, um, or there will be consolidation in the end. Next, I want to ask you, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I look at traditional TV and film and... I see a very comprehensive international strategy. I mean, now the international distribution of a film, any given film or big film now, like makes up like 80% plus of their uh, revenue. So it's clearly very important, right? And a lot of films are pre-sold abroad and then made. I, I think the same thing needs to happen for digital video, for short form um, if I were starting a business today, I would, I think, tackle that pipeline, essentially bringing content from or short form content to all the big markets abroad. And what's really cool is that you already know now with the help of YouTube and some other platforms, what kind of content is performing well, like what kind of Western content or Western influencer is performing in China, performing well in China or Vietnam or Brazil for that matter, you could then, you know, take that information and do a deal there. That presents a very exciting opportunity in the sense that you're, you already have an audience abroad. Uh, now, like, let's, you know, go do a movie or a TV show there or package up a bunch of the short form content and sell it there. Very cool. Well, perhaps we got a little taste into what's next for Parker Jones. No, no, I just said this is what I would do. <laughs> I w I'm not going to do this. I'm looking for one of your listeners to... Um, to go build this and, and I'll just help consult. What top three recommendations do you have for people listening? Well, I think the first one is to pick a mantra and live by it. What's your mantra? My mantra is to look for the word feel, okay? So whenever I tell myself something, whenever I say to myself, I don't feel like doing this, that's exactly what I should be doing. So like in the morning, if I'm going to get up, go surfing or get up really early to do to start a project um and i say to myself oh, i don't feel like getting up that key word then to me is a sign that i need to be doing it so i get up because of that it's a little less of a mantra mantras i know are sayings but this is like this is a particularly repeatable thing hmm. i've never heard that before but okay great i like that second thing it's easy to be overwhelmed by really big or complicated projects, but I always tell myself, and I think this is helpful, is that <clears throat> no matter the size, you can always break in something into smaller parts, right? And smaller parts are manageable and something you can understand. So <clears throat> the, I think the most important thing really is momentum and just getting started. So if you pick small parts to a big project and just get started, you're more likely to succeed than if you just consider this giant daunting project. Do you think that stems from your uh, background in tech? Absolutely. I mean, when I used to um, be a programmer, it, it looks incredibly difficult, and it is, um, until you just start understanding the little bits and pieces, and it all makes sense. I mean, if you look at any you know, large application, it eventually boils down to 
very simple logic statements. Even, I mean, literally look at how a computer is designed and it comes down to very simple mathematic, mathematical operations. Great. And your third recommendation? In the great words of Shia LaBeouf, just do it! <laughs> nice. And what does that relate to? I think we get caught up in our own thoughts and we can be our biggest enemy um, in, in accomplishing our you know, goals. And I actually appreciate that video. Uh, I appreciate that slogan in general. You know, stop worrying about frivolous details and just do it. Just attain what you want. Be happy. Just do it. That's awesome. Well, on that note, uh, Parker, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, great conversation, and we hope that everyone listening will get out there and just do whatever they need to do. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video.